0: And welcome to yet another edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories, coming to you from one of Hunter's favorite places, Historic Magazine Street in New Orleans. But my co-host, hailing from Maine, and our special guest from Richmond, Virginia, have a story that underlines Hunter's specialness in today's program. And as always here, I'm Christopher Tidmore coming to New Orleans, joined by the immeasurable and irrepressible Curtis Robinson in, in Maine. How are you doing, Curtis?
1: Well, I am I am doing spectacular, and I am excited uh, for this particular episode because, as friends will know, and some of them probably roll their eyes at the thought, I have been pushing a column that appeared in the Atlantic twenty five years ago. When I'm asked what the great hunter interviews are, I always include this. It's because um, I, I rate it as a top interview because of the conversational nature. I love it because you know, in the '90s, this comes to us from nineteen ninety seven. And then in the 90s, I used to always say there's two ways to get Hunter Thompson's words into your publication. One of them is to pay Hunter a ton of money up front, provide expense cash, and pray for the best. The other was to send a 20-something porter up with a decent tape recorder <laughs> and gather, gather his words. And, and one of them was infinitely cheaper and more reliable. And it almost never turned out well except – this time it really i think turned out very well and we have the author from the interview that appeared in the atlantic actually to be technical i guess the atlantic unbound as it was known then in the 90s and so uh, I, I welcome matt hahn from i believe matt richmond virginia richmond virginia that's right hello hello yes 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 so 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 matt and now that i've violated the Hemingway rule and praised the writer to his face, well, <laughs> in this case, to his ear, anyway. Let me ask you this. How old were you when you did this, and how the hell uh, <laughs> I, I, I should I say, I was there. I remember much of it, yep. uh, perhaps not all. But how did it come to pass? First of all, I was uh, 26,
2: and it came to pass in the flukiest of fashions. I had, this was 1997, probably like early June, and I had gone with my then wife to meet some of the guys she grew up with who were in a band called Genghis Angus out at a river house in Northern Neck of Virginia, sort of on the coast of the Chesapeake. With them and out there that weekend was a woman named Kim Jensen. Kim Jensen was in the magazine business up in Boston and she was involved with Fast Company Magazine at the time, and she had wanted to use a quote that Hunter had written or was attributed to him for Fast Company.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I should tell you.
2: You know the quote. Uh,
1: well, yeah, 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 all goes except for the speed or blah, 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 and they, and they wanted to do it, and I, I, I was part of screwing that up. Oh dear! Well, faster, faster until the him, Hunter. Why don't should we just give it to them? They have startup money. Let's let's tell them we want fifty thousand dollars. I think it was like that. I th-
2: I was I'm, kind of screwing that up. I don't know the money that was involved there. I, I thought the quote was great. In fact that Kim was there, somebody I'd never met before, and and I heard that she had met Hunter with George Tobias in Boston to negotiate over this quote, and that was all I needed to hear because I was a fan. So I needed to hear everything about this. What was he like? What'd you guys talk about? How was it? And it was great. And it came to find out she was heavily into the magazine business. Like, come to find out, she was COO of not just Fast Company, but The Atlantic and US News and World Report. So we talked off and on this weekend, this trip there at the at the River House. And I, as a fan, was talking about all these things. This was 97. Hunter Let's see, 25th anniversary of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the book. Uh, uh, The edition was going to the modern library, which usually only happens when the writer has passed away. Um, Fear and Loathing, the movie was becoming a movie with Terry Gilliam. If anyone was going to do a good job with that book, it would be Terry Gilliam. Um, And Hunter was turning 60, which, you know, I thought was important because, you know, this was the boy who never wanted to, to grow up. So, all these things I was just bouncing off her. And she's like, Oh, okay, okay. Let's stay in touch. She gave me her card and we all went home. That Monday morning, like the next morning, she emailed me and she's like, Hey, we want to try and get an interview with him. We have something cooking. We've got a new website, theatlantic.com, it's the Atlantic Unbound. And if you want to throw your name in the hat and try and do this interview, we don't know what's going to happen. It'll probably just be a fax. Because that's how that was his preferred, you know, mode of communication. Email this guy and when Stevenson, he was the editor at the time, just getting the Atlantic Unbound off the ground. So, so I did, and I made my pitch, um, and it it went well. And I think it was when who emailed George Tobias to see if they, we could make this happen, and he was like. You know, if we're fortunate enough to get it, we want a, an interview to run alongside an article that we're doing, like a critical analysis of Hunter's place in American letters.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, I, I don't read that much. I think I read that when it came out, but I, but yeah. I, re- I, read, I read your piece, at least. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah.
1: And that's another thing, like
2: Proud Highway had just come out, too. So all these things were happening, right?
1: So they, they put you on it. So you get that through, uh, George, I think, uh, uh, Tobias. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and so so it's set up, and, yeah. they, and they actually paid to fly you out there. Did you have to pay yourself?
2: They paid me. They paid my, my travel, my expenses, my lodging, paid for a rental car, threw in 500 bucks, and that was it. I was on my way. Couldn't believe it, you know, because okay. I was all like, this so is going to be a fax.
1: How, how did you know where to go? Did you have directions to the house? Did you have directions to Al Farm?
2: Yeah, I think I had them, like, written down.
1: Because you showed okay. up on your own. You didn't show up, like, with a cab, I don't think. You showed up, so you just sort of showed up.
2: <laughs> they knew I was coming. Like, I had called Deb ahead of time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, and that's like, probably one of the re- main reasons why this thing might have worked, like you said at the beginning, like, this worked, like, I listened to her. Because what she said was, listen, she's like, listen, I've seen too many reporters come up here, and they do their thing, and then they start drinking, and then it turns into a contest hunter he will drink you down she said if you come here to do that you're going to leave with no story so
1: i was totally was we should say by deb you mean uh, uh, deborah fuller the long time assistant <laughs> yep. yep. uh, um, she's great total sweetheart wonderful advice because yep. we had all seen that and you would you know I was, above.
2: <laughs> I didn't drink anything. I went to Woody Creek Tavern down the hill before I went up there. Didn't even have a beer. I was just like, I'm not going to mess this up. And then when I got to the house, there was wow. two guys out on the front porch waiting to talk to Hunter. I think they were editors, you know, I, stuff was, uh, stuff was being offered to me like off and on all night. And I was like, nah, tempting, very <laughs> tempting. I brought a pint of wild turkey and I brought a pack of smokes and I was like had not been smoking at the time I was like if I'm gonna fall off the wagon mm-hmm. might as well be here right so I, I got up there about 7 p.m.
1: Yeah yeah it was uh d- d- just to set the tone yep um, not to be too much of a fanboy about it but I wonder if you would read the the opening and uh the and and brace it you know everybody stay with us here uh because, <laughs> sure. because, If you go through, like, the first four graphs, take us down to where you talk about uh, uh, Hunter coaching you.
2: Yeah, sure. All right. What would you do? You're sitting in Hunter Thompson's kitchen conducting an interview, and he wants you to drink. So you drink. I had been directed to read aloud Thompson's farewell to Richard M. Nixon. He was a crook from Rolling Stone in 1994. An obituary fired off in a burst of rage the author insisted it be read aloud to capture the right effect and apparently i had not been reading with a proper and resounding emphasis no no again start over clip your words a glass of wild turkey and ice was placed in front of me for elocution purposes of course and the reading proceeded this time with the benefit of thompson's coaching
1: All right. First, people, hunter fans who have not read the obituary of Nixon should should immediately uh, make make a time to do that. And and what what struck me about this when I first read it was the wild turkey. So I was going to ask you, but you've already said you you brought wild turkey, and that's why they party because that, that was there was very much hunter shivens mode. But the wild turkey crowd, yeah. which you which you were labeled as as soon as you walked in the door, yep. uh, was always welcome. And yeah, you know, I, yeah. You were there. You talked a bit about the 25-year publication of Fear and Loathing. Yep. Uh, but you also—it's—it's it's one of the few interviews where you ask him about the JFK assassination, and you got a straight answer.
2: I got his answer. Yeah, and what he—yeah, what he believed.
0: Sure talk about how his reaction if you would not is because because hunter could get very animated when he tells this story but nobody really captured it (laughs) as well as you captured it in this article
2: well i think that you know first of all he becomes more animated as the night goes on i think that's worth pointing out because when we got there and i started it was like 8 p.m and he was just coming downstairs it was like morning for him it was like Crack of dawn for him because he's he's totally nocturnal. As the evening went on, he became more animated. So by the time the question of JFK and the assassination came up in the evening, I want to say this was probably about ten, maybe ten thirty, and he was awake. He was awake. He was animated. He was uh, you know getting up. He was pulling a bottle of Fernet off the off the fridge, the top of the fridge, and pouring shots and you know flapping his arms. And he was, he was I awake to say it was third gear, third gear oh. Hunter. <laughs> the, the polar gear. I would say that's, yeah,
0: that's what I saw.
2: It was wild to see,
0: you know? So tell us, tell us what he said and what you wrote basically. Let's see here.
2: <laughs> I have the interview here and we're going through the parts where <laughs> he had me reading the thing,
1: yeah, they're, they're,
2: the, the obituary,
1: but just, just for people are like, you can't bring up JFK and, lose, and leave it there because, of course, he was, yeah. was so associated with the family at one time. Yeah. Uh, I think – and, and I, I have I have a copy here that it was carried out by the mob but organized uh, by J. Edgar Hoover.
0: Yep. That was his belief. Well. It, a belief that we know from other uh, conversations he had shared with JFK Jr. on repeated occasions. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs>
1: But I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to, to – it's, it's difficult to paraphrase the, the entire thing, but, but you also have uh, – uh, since we just mentioned the Nixon thing, uh, mm-hmm. that, that obituary begins in New Orleans. And,
0: and it's, a, it's a particular interest to me, Matt, uh, for those mm-hmm. joining us. We're talking to Matt Hahn about his famous uh, interview with Hunter Thompson and Hunter's 60th birthday uh, in, in the Atlantic Unbound. And he's sitting with my mentor, Stephen Ambrose. I was Steve, oh, Steve man. Ambrose's research assistant. I went to work for Steve a year after this conversation happened. Oh, wow. And, um,
1: there. We, we, we'll close that loop.
0: <laughs> and so, um, I, I, I'd, I'd heard Ambrose talk about Hunter, uh, at various points. I never met Hunter at this, you know, this or later points, but it, the interesting part of how the interview was triggered, I was fascinated when you're talking about it and, and, and they're arguing and, Stephen Ambrose, everybody who looks at him just sees a, sort of a forceful of a guy. If you saw him in *Night of but he had a wicked sense of humor. He had a, uh, and he had a sort of a side grin. And in the end, Ambrose, who started out hating Richard Nixon, utterly mm-hmm. hating the man. He, nobody wanted. He didn't want to write about Nixon. He wrote about Eisenhower, who he worshipped. For those that want to know the story, it's, uh, we told it in other things. But he hated the man. At the end of it. He had this, as Steve told me on several occasions, he had this sort of this grudging respect. He, he ends the last biography with the words, you know, uh, with uh, Richard Nixon, we, we, we uh, by losing Richard Nixon, we lost a little bit more than we gained by him leaving office. And so he's kind of playing into that. You know, he really was kind of a nice man. And if there's a double entendre about it, Nixon hated Ambrose, only talked about him once and couldn't stand him. And this utterly triggers Hunter Thompson. I can imagine this happening and I can bet. And what I was curious about from the interview was it says it happens in new Orleans and, um, you know, that, that whole moment and it, and it goes down, but I'm curious, do you say in the article where it happens? Where within the article it happens? Yeah, where, 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 where the conversation with Ambrose actually happened. Well,
1: I think the article just says that they were sitting in a house in
0: New Orleans, right? Yeah. Except, yeah, they were, you yeah, know, something like that. Except yeah. they weren't in New Orleans. Oh. They were on Bay St. Louis. In the okay. back of Ambrose, Ambrose had built a what is essentially a drinking room um, <laughs> so he could smoke. wouldn't let him smoke. And they're sitting in the backyard together. When this happens. So you imagine being in the, out and sort of in the country, not far away from the coast, and uh, uh, Hunter can know, he can scream to the moon that this is going on. So it's kind of setting that. So. Oh, wow.
1: Funny, he doesn't mention that. He doesn't mention that he's staying at the poncha train, though. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember him
2: saying that he and Stephen were smoking together yeah. and talking. I do remember that. And in, in the interview, like he, had, he admitted his struggle with the peace. And then at one point, if I, I think that he he wrote to Johnny Depp or faxed him or something, he's like, "It's on. It's up to you." He's like, he he sounded like he was giving up. Like, I, that's it. I can't do it. But he did do it. He said it was fear fear of the failure theory, that motivated him.
1: Uh, which every writer is familiar Hinsburg. with. Hunter was supposed to talk at. at- Ginsburg. Hunter, Hunter, for a while, used to joke that he's become the obituary writer for his, for his age. Uh, there was Nixon. There was Timothy Leary. I think he were, he, he was supposed to write something for Ginsburg, and it didn't, it didn't go well. I don't think Johnny ever showed up at Ginsburg's funeral, though. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and he essentially, he used to tell the story that it was his watching the funeral on TV and I think it, the way he explained it to you was really, really good because, he's, and it started out with that thing, you know, where, where in the in the in the obit he says, you know, that blatantly illegal uh, funeral, <laughs> and, yeah. it was, and that kind of thing. I, I you know, it, it was really, really interesting the, Nick, the Nixon stuff and uh, uh, some of the uh, and the link back to, to to Ambrose. I'm trying to find it here. It's uh, um, it's really well put the way he says his his. Um, He doesn't say self-serving, but he says, you know, a really skilled way Ambrose gets him to almost let Nixon off the hook, you know? Uh, Oh, shoot, I'm trying. I I thought I had everything. You're here, but I don't.
2: Well, you look, when I got out there, I found and heard and learned that I apparently had missed Johnny Depp by a day. Like he left the day before with a bunch of Hunter's clothes and the Red Shark convertible to head out to, Vegas for the family. Yeah, you
1: know, uh, flip, the, the odd thing was is that he was taking a convertible. He decided to drive it back to uh California, uh but the top wouldn't go up. If I'm remembering correctly, the top wouldn't go up, so they <laughs> they just loaded him up with jackets. uh I heard a story about that once. That there's that big truck stop over the Nevada line, and and that he was tired, so he just pulled over and, and slept some in the back, and you know. And, some people came over because you know the the big red shark was there and then the next day he gets up. So so at least some people in this world walk around with the idea that, that once they stopped at a truck stop on the highway between Aspen and Nevada. And Johnny Depp was sleeping in the back of a car with no top. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so that, wild. We need to get breakfast. I'm like, that that's a pretty good story.
2: Amazing. Yeah. I, I just well he'd been staying there in the basement to to learn the mannerisms, right? To, to understand the elocution style before he headed out.
1: Yes, and as you know, there were coaching coaching would be done, and it did not matter. Even Johnny Depp could get the you're not reading it quite right, although I, I imagine the trigger was a bit you know, the it that is might true. A bit
2: more to trigger it. That is true. That kitchen was a reading room for for many folks.
1: Many oh, folks, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I have seen many, not many, I have seen some A-listers go down in flames. <laughs> they were praying for another director by the time yeah. they got out of there.
2: Wow. So, tough, tough audience, tough there, crowd.
1: You, re- you recorded the conversation, but it went really well. I mean, it talks about the internet. Uh, yeah. A little pressure there, I, yeah. It, from This is from you. Uh, quote Quoting Hunter I believe that the major operating ethic In American society right now The most universal want need is to be on TV yeah. uh, And then later he says The internet is probably the first wave of people 1997 The internet is probably the first wave of people Who have figured out a different way to catch up with TV If you can't be on TV Well at least you can reach 45 million people on the internet You know That's in 97 right. 97 not Much looking ahead
2: Yeah the- Yeah yeah, he's like – and he said – been listening to it now. After all these years, you can't – basically said you can't believe everything you read on the internet.
1: <laughs> well, well that... you know, the whole thing about citizen journalism, and I always said, you know, I'll, I'll really put a lot of faith in journal – citizen journalism when you put a lot of faith in citizen dentistry. <laughs>
0: Well, I, I thought I thought when he gets into the description of how he doesn't like gon- the term gonzo journalism, it was kind of, yes. But I've been curious about something. So I've read this article now over the last few years. Probably this is maybe my 10th time right, reading it, Manon. And so it's been a privilege to read since Curtis has been talking about it for so long.
1: But I've yeah, always... I, I'm a bit of an evangelist for it. I admit it. But,
0: <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I'm curious about the actual recording. You, you did record this conversation. Did you? Have you ever aired that recording? Nope. Do you still have, have it? Not. I do. I have it. I
2: have the photos and negatives, and I have footage that I got that was taped that night by the assistant. And I called him afterwards to ask if I could have a copy for posterity. And he said, yeah, you can have a copy. And then he said, but if it ever gets out, I'll know how it got
0: out and I'll, because I know
2: it was you. And he said, and then then we're going to come after
0: you. <laughs> Well, it just so happens you be, you're in the presence of uh, uh, Hunter's esteemed former editor, uh, Curtis Robinson and Curtis. I would say that um, some people might like to actually hear the audio of this interview:
1: Oh, I'm sure he wasn't worried about the audio getting out. I'm sure he was worried about the video getting out. <laughs> um, um, yeah, it, 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 it is interesting. I mean, there, there's parts in here you uh, that I talk to people about all the time. Like, uh, were you surprised about his attitude toward Bill Clinton, who, after all, he had sort of campaigned for?
2: Was, was I surprised? Yes. No, uh-uh. No, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised. At the time, it was 97. So, no, no, it wasn't. I wasn't. I still have that recording. I'll dig it out. But I, I, I do have
1: it. One of my favorite parts of your, of your piece. And look, if you feel funny that I'm reading this to you, I've read it to a lot of other people over time, so don't feel too special uh, just because you wrote it. Uh, (laughs) One of those things where a writer says, I wish I had written that, and and I may yet. Um, He says, this is from Hunter, there's no reason to shoot Clinton. They didn't hesitate when Kennedy seemed to be going against them. They shot him, and and they shot Bobby. They. You say, they? (laughs) They. They. Say, hey, if you're going to shoot the president of the United States, plan it and do it. You must be extremely well connected, smart, and organized. And he goes on that. And, and then he goes into the JFK thing. But he he could actually be pretty brutal uh, on the Clinton front. And and it's part of where you know the whole thing about that, and where he says he doesn't believe there's two parties after all. And uh, I mean, why why do you? I mean, it's also a matter of fact. I wonder how much editing you did. I mean, this is an edited piece. From, from a, a long interview. So how many how much sound do you have on tape? Probably three hours?
2: I think I have three hours. Yeah, I brought like a stack of cassette tapes. And I think we rolled tape till, if I remember right, it was about one in the morning, maybe 1.30. Because after that, we went out back and, and shot guns, shot books. I brought some books, and we went he signed a couple, and put a bullet through each of them. And then it was about two in the morning and then you guys were heading into town and I was, I went home. Yeah.
1: Was was that gun wrangler that night or was was it someone else?
2: I think, I think it may have been you. I, I do know this. He was in his command chair and when we were all said and done and turned the tape off and we were going to go out back, he just reached right, just hands, arms reach to the right knee. That drawer comes out, out comes the forty-five. And that was the gun that we used. I have a picture of him holding that gun. I don't know. You know, that might have been the gun, but I just, he kept it right. I was just like, oh, okay. It's right there the whole time we were talking, loaded. Mild.
1: How did, how did, surely to God, you didn't drive back to Aspen?
2: Oh, I did. I was, remember, I was sober. Like, I'd had a little bit of wild Turkey, but that was it. Other things were offered, but I, I was like, I was determined not to blow this assignment.
1: You know, so. 97 it was a, uh, yeah, they, that was in the, the middle of the, uh, for me, that was almost peak Hunter in some ways. It was, uh, I was fitting, Yeah. You know, I was out there four nights a week and, uh, you know, greeting journalists like yourself when they would come in and say, it was, <laughs> it, it was about as much fun as you could humanly have. It. Cause you know, I was, I was a hunter. I was a big Hunter fan as well. And, uh, but I don't remember. You didn't come off as nearly as obsequious as as perhaps I would. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, mean, sure, of... I
2: think maybe part of why I was hired was I. I don't think that I had anywhere near the the ego. You know, I think I probably, in retrospect, was seen as like a a, a foil. You know, that that some you know that I could f- make that work, and I think it did.
0: The Frost Nixon of Hunter S. Thompson.
1: Um, there's so much. It's right. almost like all all the great ones. Uh, Hunter at one point says, "the the the." But what I did assume at that time, this is talking about early earlier, uh, early on, and shit every year forever after that was that I would be dead very soon. The fact that I'm not dead yep. is sort of puzzling to me. It's sort of an awkward thing to deal with.
2: Yep. You always you always wanted to hold that yeah in 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 reserve for sure.
1: Well, we would talk about it. We we called it the Hemingway option. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah that. It, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, that's only a shock when you first think about it, but after a while, you well, of course, we considered. You know, he's a big he. He understood the Hemingway way, and uh, and you know, and, and the other things, the, the other bases you hit. Uh, uh you to ask him about Gonzo journalism. Yeah. Uh, not a fan, was he?
2: Not that big of a fan. No, no. You know, one thing I, I remember, you know, like everything that I heard about him is like, he's going to tear you up. You know, you're just some journalist coming up there and he's just going to toy with you like a like a cat with a mouse. And I didn't feel I mean, I, the whole reading of the thing and the wild turkey and the your, clip your words, do it o- over. I can deal with all that. Like it, he was he was very much a, a southern gentleman. He followed, Like a week after I got home, back to Richmond, he, he called. Yes, it was 2.30 in the morning. I wish I'd saved that answering machine tape. I didn't, but he left a message. Hey, thanks for coming out. I had a great time talking with you. I think it went really, really well. And give me a call sometime. And, and, and so I did, and I, I called back and we had a conversation for a while. And he said, hey, this is on your dime. Why don't uh, we hang up and I'll, I'll call you back? We talked for a while. There were other people in minute, the kitchen.
1: You to him and he, and he worried about your long distance bill.
2: Yeah, yeah. You might have been in the room when I called back. And he said, Hey, uh, we're here in the kitchen. We're talking about uh black hairy tongue disease. Do you know anything about that? And I was yeah, actually I, I remember this call. You were there. So you maybe you were there. And I said, I said, Yeah, I I do know about black hairy tongue disease. I had a roommate in college, bio major, and he had a textbook of all these the diseases and things that can happen to a human body when things get out of whack, black hairy tongue disease is when the pH in your mouth is off, and you you know, get this fungus. And so yeah, I did, and I told him about it, and he thought that was great. And he's like, "Well, do you have a? You made the diagnosis. Uh, what's what's your treatment?" And I said, uh, "Well, you know, don't go down on peroxide blondes, I guess." <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah.
2: And uh he, he thought that was great.
1: I wasn't gonna mention that unless you did. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. And then I, I called him back another time to ask if I could have the footage and he and he called me back and you know he was I don't know, he was very southern gentleman with me.
1: Yeah, you know what? When when the when the article came out we saw it all. one of the one of the things and I you know, I wasn't an immediate fan of the article. I was I was like, you know what? Uh, and I asked him, I said, well, you know, that, that's much better than we normally get. You know, what do you think the difference was? And, and, and he said, well, if you want a good interview, ask good questions. If you know, <laughs> ask good questions, you got good answers. And I think that's what it was. I think you came in with uh, decent questions. And there, there are examples where uh, you walked up to where people had gone one way. Yeah. And you went the other way you ask about new journalism gonzo and then and then, then uh, you, you went to, you got to the point where someone would say do you wish you would written novels blah 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 but you went the other way you went and I don't have any from it but you went the other way and you you said uh, you, you asked him do you wish should you have just done straight journalism yeah and then you get that great story about well maybe if the guy at the Washington Post hadn't died.
2: Yeah, that was I think that's how it wraps. But yeah, we talked about like you say you had a newspaper of your own. Who who would you who would you hire on for your staff? He seemed to like that. He said something like, Yeah, we are talking about doing something like that and getting something like that off the ground.
1: Well that could have been one of two things about that era. We were talking about doing something locally, but I'd already I, I owned an independent newspaper at that point in ninety seven in in the Aspen well uh, outside of Aspen in the Valley. But I think in 97, I think what he was talking about is we were trying to find a way to buy the San Francisco Examiner. I think it was the Examiner. Wow. And, and we were trying to hook Don Johnson into it cause he had that great show, Dash Bridges, that was set out in San Francisco. But I sure. think that, that, that's a reference to you know trying to take over San Francisco journalism at one time. Uh, the plan was to, to take the top floor of the offices and just make it into a hunter suite and then use the the helicopter port on top that he would just come down like a batman kind of thing into the newsroom just a pole (laughs) that would just slide down and uh i don't think it was practical
0: perhaps not. But the image. Yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People who'd kill to be in that newsroom. Um well,
1: you know, we, we put the gonzo fist, like instead of the Batman symbol, we would gonna go project the gonzo fist onto the clouds when the commissioner needed him. And uh we were way into it actually and had there was some kind of bizarre thing involving uh the Hearst company. But anyway, that, that's what I think that's what he's referring to. And, he was gonna staff it with PJ O'Rourke and some others. And even that part's good, but it's uh so so you go up, you're twenty six years old, it dawns on me since this is the twenty fifth anniversary. So yeah. you've lived as long now since then as you lived before then.
2: Yeah, I'm twice as old now. How, how as do you I was
1: that? Are you
2: positive. I'm positive. I mean glad to be healthy. I've had some health issues. Um, sure. I mean, I think that you have to live. You live long enough.
0: You're going to have you know, concerns and things you need to keep track of. Um, so let me but, ask. So let me then ask you, looking back 25 years. Yeah. So Hunter Thompson, 25 years ago, is referring to H.L. Mencken's caustic and uh, um, uh, in, uh, obituary that he wrote, uh, Wilson, and he's trying to match it with Nixon. Have you ever thought of writing an obituary of uh, of equal, he was a crook in your life? <laughs> of people who I've encountered? Uh-huh. Sh- sure. People, people think... who were crooks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I
2: can think of a few for sure. I'm not sure I'd have the uh, eloquence. Um, I'd like to think that I could, you know, summon the, the the rage that would get me, that would get me through, which is I think what kind of triggered him to get his peace his piece done after all but yeah for sure i don't know it it was it was an incredible experience i feel incredibly lucky to have kind of fallen into it um if i had had the chance to do it again you know like looking ahead 25 years i probably would have phrased some of my questions a little differently maybe asked some different questions some of them come off to me a little softbally but being there with him and sensing the way he was, I th- I was kind of probing a little bit to t- test for reaction, see if we could go deeper on some of these things, and I kind of got this vibe that he was he was good where he was. Oh, um, so.
1: he was ready. He was ready to kick you to the curb. He was like, you know, yeah. You know, well, this this guy gets an hour, and we'll you know we'll be yeah. we'll go into town or something, and and it just didn't. Uh, uh granted you came in heeding uh uh good advice not to try to uh uh, make it into a game but but at the end of the evening it was it was quite nice and uh i don't think you asked him to shoot the book i think you might have asked him to sign it and he and then he shot it
2: yep do you still have it i do and it says inside the cover (laughs) here's hoping you learn from your experiences
1: <laughs> well, that's true. Let me ask you this. This, this is a podcast of Hunter Thompson stories. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a good one. And a lot of people are Hunter fans. So, how, that, how do you bring it up? I mean, how, how do you, if someone says, Yeah, well, I, I love that Hunter Thompson, you say, Odd oh, you would mention that.
2: <laughs> if I'm wearing a t shirt, I pull up my sleeve and I show them my right shoulder. <laughs> Got a little gonzo uh symbol, tattooed there
1: oh well, you have the tattoo oh wow
2: the yeah i went and did the tattoo for sure that was about 2000. Just tell me you got the fist oh yeah it's the peyote fist it's been a while now so the red of the peyote buttons is quite faded but it's there yeah i mean it's definitely a it's it's definitely something that comes up in conversation for sure. And I don't do that kind of writing anymore. You know, I was a journalist, but I had gotten out of it. By the time 97 rolled around, and I was working for, you know, a company headquarters here in Richmond, my girlfriend at the time had been diagnosed with 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 cancer, and we weren't married yet. So I was, you know, the medical coverage that came with, as you all know, you know, you break your make your break in journalism. I think in the early 90s, I was making less than 15 grand a year. So right got to box, got to Richmond, got to Richmond, had some started to have some responsibilities. So now I write marketing and advertising copy, but the story, the st- the story does come up from time to
0: time,
1: for sure. I think I think I would get I think if I'd written this I would get a QR code tattoo <laughs> on the back <laughs> of my hand and then it'd say here scan this scan this. <laughs> It
2: was um, it was a hell of an experience, now, for sure. I like, all the way home. I couldn't believe that that this had transpired. So you know, you know he he hadn't drink drank me under the table.
1: Well, no, no, no. It's uh, uh, yeah, yeah. You gotta you gotta be careful about uh, and and people had to pick something. The, the The people who burned out the worst were the people who decided to stay with everything and compete on all fronts. But <sighs> I mean, you know.
2: You, so you've seen this?
1: You've seen this happen? You've seen it transpire, oh, well, Curtis? Yes, I've seen people. I've seen, yes, yes, yes. And, and when, that, when when someone comes in, they're, they're a little bit, people get nervous, and they, they get a little cocky, and they decide, this is my time to party with Hunter Thompson. And, yeah. you know, yeah. you've got about an hour and a half, two hours, in, and no. you're going to have to throw them in a cab.
2: No, no. Well, you know, I had, this, that was offered to me off and on over the cor- course of the evening, but I was just not going to, like, No. Yeah, I could tell I have a hell of a story. Yeah, I got high, smoked pot with Hunter Thompson, whatever. But no,
0: I was just didn't want to blow it. Didn't want to blow it. So, so. we're 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 a bit over time. So we sure. should wrap this through. Though I want we want to have you back and try to get some Absolutely. of the audio clips from this, if we can, from the interview, Absolutely. and have you sort of give us. Uh, you're you're running commentary, perhaps, uh, this. So we've got to talk off air if we can, Matt about how to do that. But I I, w- and I, and again,
1: I, I let me. I, I know we, we got to go, but let me just say, uh, uh, I say. I send newcomers to this piece. I send people who have not seen it who knew Hunter for fifty years. I send people to this piece. I. I I love it. I I, I hear what you're saying about maybe you should have drilled down. Maybe it was a bit. But it it, it hits so many buttons. It's so conversational. And uh, and I know it's 25 years later, but congratulations.
0: Thank you, Curtis. Thank you. It's it's very kind. And if I can finish, and and I can finish. (laughs) Great journalists (laughs) who ask great questions should have the questions put to them them as their epitaph. So you asked the question. Uh, to uh, to Hunter, in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, you were looking for the American dream. What is there for people to find in 1997? Well, let me ask you, Matt Hahn, of the American dream, what is there for people to find in 2023 with the wisdom that you've percolated 25 years after talking to Andrew Thompson?
2: Well, I think the idea is perhaps, this, you know, the the idea is that you can come here and you can become someone else. You can get a fresh start. Can you do that anywhere else in the world? You know, probably. But I think the American dream is you can come here and you can start over. You can get a fresh start and be treated supposedly on, on, on equal ground.
0: Hunt, you quote Hunter. I hunters, think that means different things yeah. to
2: different people, you know, who, who you are, what your background is, what your ethnicity is,
0: for sure. You, you quote Hunter a couple paragraphs later saying, right, the world is your oyster. Um, and and he found out that writing was the way to be effective with that, do you find that that has been true of your life? Yeah, I think for sure. I think since I was a kid, you
2: know, I always just saw myself being a writer in some shape, form, or or capacity. And I've done the the newspaper thing, you know, did that for a a good while, and it informed, you know, that that sort of thing. It it changes your life. It, It makes you humble. Um you see people at, at their best, you see people at, at their worst. Um, yeah, I mean if you if you choose that as a route, as a path, um, it can only have it'll have huge effects on your life, your outlook on on, on the world. i just you know, well, I feel I'm very much right.
1: about the difference between amateurs and professionals. The professional can do it more than more than once. He said Boy, well, that was he, Louis Armstrong. He said he said he said the difference with amateur professionals a check. <laughs> <laughs> said, well, and, 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 and of course, he also said that riding's a, uh, a lot like sex. It's uh, mostly fun for amateurs.
0: That's great. <laughs> That's hilarious. On that, on that note, there are no amateurs here, um, but uh, we hope to bring you a little bit more professionalism uh, in, in, uh, with Matt Hahn and future episodes going through some of this incredible interview and perhaps Hunter's own words and his own voice. Uh, with that, Matt, th- thank you for joining us here on Hunter Gatherer's